Hello, everybody. This is Volts for February 16th, 2022. Volts Podcast. Gerald Butts and Catherine McKenna on Canada's carbon tax. I'm your host, David Roberts. In 2015, after nearly a decade of conservative rule, Justin Trudeau and his Liberal Party won a majority of seats in the Canadian Parliament and control of the federal government. Part of Trudeau's election platform was a carbon tax. The proposed tax had a few key features. First, it would only be imposed on provinces that did not have their own pricing system that met a few minimum requirements. And second, all the money collected from a province would be returned to that province as carbon dividends. After years of vigorous advocacy and negotiations, Trudeau's liberals got the tax passed through Parliament. It was implemented in early 2019, just before another federal election that became widely seen as a national referendum on the tax. Liberals won again. The carbon tax was affirmed. It's going to stick and rise to a whopping $170 a ton by 2030. This is a startling success story for climate policy that was largely overlooked in the U.S. We uh, had some other stuff going on. But it's worth taking a closer look at how Canada pulled it off. Two people at the core of the tax pitch were Gerald Butts, who was Principal Secretary to the Prime Minister from 2015 to 2019 and Trudeau's closest personal advisor, and Catherine McKenna, who was the Minister of Environment and Climate Change during the same period. Butts and McKenna were in the trenches, and they have the scars to show for it. Both of them noticed the piece I published on Volts in January on carbon tax refunds, and they objected to the conclusion that dividends did not make the carbon tax more popular in Canada. So I had them on the pod. We talked about how the carbon tax was conceived, what enabled it to secure majority support, yes, they say refunds were important, and where the politics of carbon pricing stand as we move into the 2020s. Not only were my spirits lifted, it's nice to know there's a sane country out there somewhere, but I learned an enormous amount. I think you will too. Without further ado, Catherine McKenna and Jerry Butts, welcome to Volts. Thanks for coming. Very happy to be on. It's great to be here. This is great. I'm really excited. Uh, the reason you're both on here is that I, I wrote about a paper last week that has to do with the political effect of dividends on carbon taxes. And y'all had some uh, issues with, with the conclusions that's drawn. But before we get there, I thought it would be great for my largely U.S.-based audience to sort of travel down memory lane about the Canadian carbon tax generally because, you know, around 2015 when Trudeau was elected and then, you know, all the way up to 2018 when the carbon tax was passed, the U.S. was, you know, going through some stuff uh, and maybe 
we were slipping on our usual due diligence, keeping up with what's going on uh, <laughs> with our neighbor to the north. So I'm curious, when Trudeau announced his candidacy in 2015, the carbon tax was right there. It was part of his initial pitch. So I'm just wondering, how far back does the carbon tax idea go? You know, what's its origin? Who got it in Trudeau's ear? How long has it sort of been bouncing around up there before it made its debut on the national stage? Go for it, Kath. Well, I think that's definitely a Jerry question <laughs> because I was I was a minister. Ministers get mandate letters uh, from the prime minister, but you uh, you were the principal advisor of the prime minister, and in the lead up to the election, clearly you guys had thought hard about it. I didn't know I was going to be environment uh, minister of environment and climate change. Well, we'll be polite Canadians and defer to one another on that, but uh, <laughs> I I think David, it, it's and I promise I won't go back too far, but. It actually started the first time it was a real issue in Canada was during the federal election campaign of 2008. And it's important for the context of this story for reasons I'll go into later. But the Liberal Party proposed something called the Green Ship, which was an elaborate take on a carbon tax under the leadership of Stéphane Zion. But it was easily caricatured as a regional wealth redistribution program because the revenue from the tax was paid into the consolidated revenue fund of the federal government under that plan. And it was redistributed by the federal government to programs of its own choosing, not all of which were environmentally related. And to me, that was the, uh, there were a lot of reasons beyond the green shift that the Liberal Party lost the election in 2008. But that was the fundamental flaw in the policy. The idea is that you're just taking wealth from carbon intensive provinces and redistributing it elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And that, of course, has a history in this country that goes back to when the current Prime Minister Trudeau's father, Prime Minister Trudeau, was Prime Minister, and he created the National Energy Program. So the Conservative government at the time under Stephen Harper, which, to be diplomatic, was not inclined to climate action, uh, <laughs> easily caricatured this as the second coming of the National Energy Program in Western Canada in particular. And made it out to be that the Liberal Party was after Western money to pay for Eastern programs, which is always, you know, death in politics in Canada. Uh, So when we designed our program, there were lots of people within the party, I must say, who thought we should stay a million miles away from it because they were convinced that they lost the election in 2008 because of carbon taxes. We were very careful to make sure that any of the revenue collected went back to the province from which it originated. And that, I think, was what unlocked the political constituency for carbon pricing in Canada. So that design, the design that money goes back to the province from which it is gathered, that was from the very beginning, before you, before you even announced, as you were working it out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, um, so I came in as minister, I first minister of climate change. And uh, was given this mandate. And I I mean, it was very clear that was going to be the hardest thing to land as part of our climate plan, because the first time ever we uh, we went to Paris, we, you know, worked really hard to get an ambitious Paris agreement. But then we had to go home and do the work and we had to get a full climate plan. But uh, this was going to be the hardest piece. So I was stuck with the unenviable task of meeting with provinces and territories all the time. And going through this discussion that was interminable on carbon pricing, like there was a lot, not a lot of appetite and everyone would bring all the reasons not to do it. 
So we needed to think really hard about how we were going to land it. And, and it's important to know there were uh, some provinces that had pricing. So at that time, Alberta had an NDP, a progressive government that had brought in a price on pollution. Quebec was in cap and trade system with California, as was Ontario. And then BC had a direct price, so they had a, a carbon tax. And so we came to the table with that. And I think that, um, I mean, certainly Jerry and I spent a lot of time talking about the design. And, and I'll be frank, there were a lot of people who, first of all, shied away, didn't want to do it. But then when they decided maybe we could do it, they still thought it was okay to take the money and distribute it as the government saw fit. And I knew I couldn't land it. I knew there was no way, because as liberals, as progressives, that's what people, like they believe kind of the worst, that you're going to take this yes. money and you're going to have your special things you want to do, which might be really dumb um, in the perspective of others. And so it was pretty clear, but it was a fight internally too. Um, that uh, saying all the money was going to go back in a transparent way, that was just critically important to me. I knew I couldn't land it. And it was still very hard. Um, like we had to do good comms, which I think we'll get into the article. But I think it's interesting, the perspective of the article, because yeah, it was going to be hard, but it was critically important that we could talk to people and say, you're going to get more money back. Well, yeah. before we get into implementation, I'm just a, curious a little bit how it played in the election, in the 2015 election, sort of Trudeau's big triumph. I'm curious how central the sort of carbon tax was in his campaign and in and in the sort of election generally, or were there bigger forces? There were bigger forces in 2015, to be brutally honest. And one of them is your, um, uh, I read your lament on why Biden's child tax credit, wondering why it hasn't been so popular. The corner piece of our 2015 election campaign was something called the Canada Child Benefit, which was a progressive benefit given according to family income to people directly in cash, right? That's what we ran on in 2015. Mm. It was the middle class has been screwed by 25 years of uh, supply-side economics, and we're going to do something about it because we know you're hurting. And everything else built out from there. Climate was, in 2015, it helped us consolidate a progressive community behind the Liberal Party, and this is an important piece of the context in Canada. You know, there are a variety of options on the left. One of which, <laughs> so one what? of which the center left. Uh, one of which is the Green Party that has diminished over time, and this is related to why we think the article is incorrect. That has diminished its political viability over the, over time as the Liberal Party has absorbed progressive environmental policy. So everybody wanted to get rid of Stephen Harper in 2015. Uh, and there was a debate over whether it was going to be us or the NDP. We put a more progressive policy platform together than they had. And climate was a huge part of that. And I have no doubt that it helped consolidate the progressive community and has kept it there through some difficult times. Mm hmm. But wasn't maybe central to the larger public discussion, which just meant that once you're elected and you're having to do it, then people really start paying attention to it. And then you have to start really making yeah. it. It gets real. It gets it real. It gets yeah, real. Why we had to put Catherine in charge of it to do it. <laughs> so this structure where it, the Canadian, the carbon tax was designed as a backstop, which means that provinces that had their own carbon pricing systems that meet certain sort of minimum thresholds are left alone. And and only provinces that don't have one, a, a sufficient one, 
have this imposed on them. Was that structure also part of it from the very beginning? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, there are two things that uh, Americans can be forgiven for not thinking deeply about when it comes to Canadian politics, uh, probably more than two. But for the purposes <laughs> of this discussion, there are two. One of them is all of the revenue collected from the carbon price in Canada goes back to the provinces. None of it is spent on federal programming. Mm -hmm. So if that sounds, if you're sitting in a provincial government too good to be true, there were lots of provincial governments on ideological grounds who opposed it and who really kind of opposed it, but said they were in favor of it in public. Uh, uh, but that's the truth. That's what we did. And some people, as Catherine said, were not in favor of it. That's the first thing. The second thing is we were coming into power again, as Catherine said, at a time when four of the, I guess the four largest provinces already had a carbon pricing scheme in place because they were acting in the absence of federal leadership during the Harper years. So had you had we gone back from the very beginning, had there been no carbon pricing anywhere in Canada, it would have been easy to put a uniform system in place. Mm -hmm. But we had to create this concept of equivalency because we didn't want to punish the governments that had led on climate action at the subnational level in Canada. And that those two things are really important contextual pieces of the Canadian politics uh, of the time to understand. Uh, was there a lot of debate over what the backstop levels are? Because that's, you know, sort of like what you choose as your bottom line is effectively choosing which provinces are going to get overridden. So, <laughs> yeah. so what, was that, what was that process like? What are the sort of minimums? Well, Catherine could speak to that better than I can because she a lot of time on this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But from my perspective, I'd just say conceptually, this is why a carbon price was important in the first place, because there would have been nothing to use as a benchmark and nothing to uniformly uh, compare across the country as equivalency. When we say equivalency, what we really mean is an equivalent carbon price through some mix of policy measures at the provincial level. Right. So, Catherine, how was that hashed out? I mean, that's um, you can imagine if you're putting together a sort of baseline that provinces have to meet, you can imagine a baseline being quite elaborate and complicated, or you can imagine a very simple one. Was that done in dialogue with the provinces? Well, was it done in dialogue? There was a lot of dialogue with the provinces. I mean, look, at the end of the day, hard things are hard. And so I sat in so many meetings and we went nowhere, but we did know where the four provinces were at that had a price. And we decided, but we, like the federal government, ultimately, like cabinet decided, okay, we're going to start at 10 bucks because that meant the systems that existed, although we had to have some equivalency with cap and trade, but the system that existed uh, would be acceptable for the four provinces. Now, Two of those provinces changed governments, and so we lost the pricing that they had, their systems, but it just showed resilience. This is the way we decided it made sense. Now, the thing, though, that I'm not going to bore you with, and in fact, you know, I just had way smarter people than me, is there was a lot of design work, right? Like, this is across-the-board carbon price with all these different jurisdictions, and then we have an output-based pricing system for major emitters as, uh, you know, the backstop. And, and also there's a benchmark on that. So it's not like the design. I think, you know, environmentalists would probably love us to go into details. I won't go into <laughs> details of the design. But in the end, like, how did it happen, right? Because one day you have to just announce it or you have to do it. 
So the provinces were trying to delay, and this was a key part. So this was in 2016. So 2015, Paris Agreement. Uh, 2016, you know, we have some major challenges with you folks, and we're trying to land carbon pricing, but it was clear it wasn't going to happen. So I remember Jerry and I had a conversation. I said, like, I can't land this on my own. I need the prime minister to be totally with me on this. And so what we did is I was at a meeting of my provincial and territorial counterparts. So it was quite a useless discussion going around the table again, people restating their positions like they do in negotiations and or maybe going backwards. And I said, well, OK, you know what? It's been a great discussion. Um, you might want to see that you might want to turn to the House of Commons because the prime minister is just announcing now that there's going to be a price across the country and it's starting at 10 bucks. And going to 50 in 2022. Going to 50 bucks, yeah, in 2022. And then a number of people stormed off. It was like all hell <laughs> broke loose at, at the table. And now I kind of, obviously, I talked to the, some of the key provinces that had it to reassure them that their system was going to be acceptable as long as it continued to go up. I mean, obviously, right. stringency is really important. And uh, it was quite a lot of drama. But that's when it got really real. Right. Like, I mean, we had many discussions, but suddenly, you know, front page of newspapers, like there's going to be a, a carbon tax across Canada. And that's, you know, the, the interesting part of this article, which kind of suggests that, like, given all the money back, even that can't save a carbon tax. So, number one, we've been through two elections and it's held. And the Conservative Party, which has been extremely difficult, the Federal Conservative Party, even brought in kind of a weird system, but it was a fig leaf maybe of a carbon tax um, in the last election. In 2019, um, the majority of Canadians supported a party that had a price on pollution. So in a way, we, we were able to land it, but there was a lot of drama between 2016 when it was announced and then getting it in 2019. And it just showed that because I think there was talking about technocratic dreams um, and, you know, policies, how do you know, policies can't really transcend politics. But what's missing in that is people, right? Like, I actually think people are kind of reasonable. We have a prime minister who said this, Jean Chrétien. He's like, Canadians are reasonable. Be reasonable. Maybe that's the crucial difference here. <laughs> Maybe we've located <laughs> the heart of the difference here. Well, I mean, that, that could be, but sometimes, like, I'll just, my background, I, I did human rights, so I did a bunch of things, I worked internationally, but I kind of thought the clim climate people were taking care of climate, right? Like, it's a very specific, mm. the people who go to COPS, I didn't, right. I didn't even know what a COP stood for when I took the job. And so I was always trying to think like a regular person. I'm from Hamilton, Hamilton's like Detroit, and uh, it's a steel town. And so... What we went through, and, and Jerry, you can probably talk about this because we did a lot of polling. Like there's this suggestion that the polling demonstrates that it didn't make a difference. People didn't know about it. Yeah. Um, we actually iterated even on language. <laughs> like if you, we started and you can look at polling if you say carbon tax. And by the way, the Supreme Court said it, we won at the Supreme Court in 2020. They said it's not a carbon tax because all the money went back. Yeah, I want to talk about the Supreme Court decision later, but just to just so we're clear, the listeners are clear because I'm not sure we've ever actually mentioned this, but the structure of the taxes, 90% of the revenue goes straight back to households in the province from which yep. the tax was collected. That's right. And 10% is what? That goes to business, uh, indigenous communities and other organizations. But once again, in a transparent way. Got it. And I have one other naive question that I feel like we should get to before we get to the details of the politics. Here in the U.S., 
we find it difficult to do anything to pass any laws because our <laughs> laws have to be voted through the House of Representatives, right. and then they have to be voted through the Senate, where they have to get by an absurd filibuster supermajority requirement, and then they have to be reconciled between both houses, and they have to be signed by the yeah. president, which effectively means nothing ever passes. So, so just... <laughs> For those of us who are not up on Canadian politics, just literally, what does it take to pass a law in Canada? Like what, presumably Trudeau can't just stand up and say, we're doing this now. It has to be an act of the legislature. So is that just a single majority vote in parliament or is there more to it than that? There is more to it. This is like Schoolhouse Rocks, Canadian Schoolhouse Rocks here. I was just thinking how a bill becomes a law. Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> let's let's not go into too much detail here <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly um well the situation is much more straightforward if you have a majority government which we did we're a parliamentary democracy derivative of the british parliamentary system so if there's a majority party in the house of commons that forms the government generally they can rely upon passing their own legislation right and our senate is not elected and therefore doesn't have the democratic authority to question the central purpose of any legislation. So essentially, if it passes through Parliament, it makes it. The big caveat, and we'll come to this, I think, is, of course, anybody can litigate in the courts any piece of legislation that goes through Parliament. We'll get to that. But just to be clear, not a supermajority in, no, <laughs> in, no. in the Parliament. <laughs> if you just have more votes than votes against, the law passes. I realize this sounds very That's simple, correct. but yeah. but any American listening will be incredulous at the... Yeah, yeah. well, we're familiar with your system as well. <laughs> and uh, your system was designed not to do anything. <laughs> yes. And it generally works, except when there's like depression or war. Yeah, when you when you need <laughs> when you purpose. need to do things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so then there's Trudeau winning in 2015 election on the back of this and then the sort of second piece of it is getting it through parliament. And was there ever a realistic chance that enough members of parliament from your own coalition would rebel against this cuz also down here in the US we can't even really rely on Democrats to vote for democratic policies. So, I mean, was there ever any real doubt that if Trudeau put up a real bill, it would pass? No. (laughs) There was doubt that we could manage the politics internally to get a real bill tabled. Got it. And that had to do with the federal-provincial dynamics of the time. Right. But it also had to do with the internal management of caucus and cabinet. Generally, the disagreements are behind the scenes Mm-hmm. in cabinet or in uh, in caucus. And people were jumpy. People were jumpy in... People were jumpy. But I bet they weren't going out to make arguments against their own party in the Wall Street Journal, though. No, they were not. <laughs> no, they were Thank God. Yeah, and yeah. this is just... The reason I emphasize this is that in terms of setting a political context, something that is kind of a fait accompli that is definitely going to happen brings out a different dynamic than something that you might be able to block. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, Once it's tabled though, David, and this is a really important distinction that, you know, Canada is not this lovely magical land of unicorns where everything is easy and progressive. That's not the way it works up here. A lot of hard work was done behind the scenes. And remember the context that we had come from third place and almost extinction level event for the <laughs> Liberal Party of Canada and right. gone to form a government for the first time in the country's history. It had never happened before. 
Uh, and there were lots of people in that caucus who were veterans of the 2008 election that I alluded to earlier. Right. Thus the jumpiness. Exactly. And members of staff in senior roles who were like, do we really have to do this? <laughs> um, and, you know, frankly, it was Catherine's leadership along with, and we should mention the finance minister at the time, Bill Morneau, because finance tends to be the place where people gather to make things not happen. It's like our own Congress <laughs> within the federal, <laughs> the federal government. Bill was clear from the get-go that he 100% stood behind what Catherine wanted to do, and we were going to make it happen come hell or high water. And of course, it goes without saying the prime minister was behind it too. So Catherine, you're then trying to calm jittery <laughs> provincial officials. Just intuitively to me, if you go to a provincial official and say, all the tax we collect from your province will be returned directly to the people of your province, and most of them will come out ahead financially. That to me sounds like you know, if I'm a sensible person, that just sounds like a political home run. So like, what was all the jumpiness? What were the objections to that? I mean, when you pose that idea, it sounds so sensible. I'm just wondering, like, what were the counter arguments you were hearing? Well, so I think I should make a distinction. Caucus was jumpy. Provinces were angry. Um, and, <laughs> and they were just, you know, they were just conservatives, right? So it, it was the weirdest thing because I really designed and well, you know, with, you know, the support of Jerry and a, a whole bunch of people, Bill Morneau, the finance minister, with a bunch of officials, what was the most small C conservative policy you could do? And <laughs> right. I remember meeting George Schultz. Um, and he did. I know that the, you know, that that came up. There are obviously Republicans who supported um fee and dividend and uh retired Republicans. Let's just make that retired, real clear. I know. <laughs> well yeah, he unfortunately passed away even. But like I really wanted to get the politics right. And so I gave these folks an opportunity, like I said, to go fill your boots, design your own policy. And to be clear that if the provinces that didn't already have a pricing system, they designed their own, they could keep the revenues. They didn't even have to give it back to the people. They could decide yeah. they were going to take the money. And so they could go put it to their pet projects. That wasn't going to be our problem. So dividends were are not part of the minimum threshold they have to meet? No. No. Just the price itself, That's basically, right. is the yep. minimum. Although, interestingly, no one really – well, in the end, some people have come around, some problems have come around, but that wasn't even enough of an attraction. I mean, it was kind of laughing. I was like, okay, so you can either – we'll either do a system where we give all the money back to your province, it's going to go back to the people in a transparent way, or you even can design your own system that as long as it meets the benchmark, you can do whatever you want with the money. Yeah, it kind of seems like if you're going to reject that, you're just going to reject any exactly carbon price. Yeah. Like there's no there's no you can't get more flexible than that. You put your finger right on it. That was precisely our objective, right? It was to say that if you can't agree with this cuz there again, the political context of the time, there were a bunch of conservatives running around Canada saying, "Oh yeah, 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 we believe in climate that climate change is happening and it's a bad thing uh, and we should do something about it." But that's not, not nothing. Let me tell you, that's not nothing. <laughs> no, I know it's not nothing, but it, it, in some ways it's more pernicious than nothing because it's dishonest. Right. And we can come to that. But this is a really critical point. Our objective was to take all of the objections that have been leveled against previous attempts, be it regional redistribution, tax grab by the government, mm -hmm. you know, some nefarious global plot sponsored by WEF <laughs> and George Soros, whatever 
that bar theory wanted to uh, people wanted to level at it and say, no, this is a really simple thing. We're going to collect the revenue and we're going to give it back. So if you're against that, then you're against everything. Right. So so I return, Catherine, to my question then. What were their purported objections to this seemingly very reasonable policy? They Well, they just lied. And I mean, it's not a very nice thing to say, but they did. They just pretended it. They just they were so opposed to liberals <laughs> that they just <laughs> said it was a it was a cash grab. And yeah. so it was so important. Like this gets why, why you know, I, I just looked at this article. I said, this is not the narrative. Like it was so important to deal with the lies to be able to say and really spend a lot of time selling to say all the money was going back. And if you are in, take Ontario, very important province politically, it's where the majority of, you know, it's, a, it's the largest province um, by population, to be able to say, this is the amount of money that the average, you know, family is going to get back, which is more than what you're going to pay was super, super important because you know, what they would do, it was, it was decisive. In terms of public opinion, you mean? Well, I mean, well, I don't know, Jerry, you can answer that. Uh, no, well, look, I mean, you were the one doing it. It's not, this is part of my objection with, to the article is the definition of what public opinion is. If you ask someone their views on something in a poll and it's a theoretical prospect, they're going to have one opinion of it. But when they go to decide which political tribe they belong to at the ballot box, mm-hmm. that's where the rubber hits the road. And there is no doubt, even from a public opinion perspective, the the authors of the study, and by the way, I never like to have fights with environmentalists, especially in public, uh, (laughs) but this is a really important thing, I think. They were looking at publicly available data. I can tell you from the stuff that we were doing internally within the government that there was a 25-point difference in support for a carbon tax and a carbon tax with a rebate. Huh. 25 points among voters yes yes voters oh wow but let me back up one second Catherine, because i'm i'm sort of uh by nature perversely fascinated by arguing with irrational people i don't know why but <laughs> that's why we're so, all on twitter so, <laughs> right so there's a lot of arguing i don't worry <laughs> these conservatives are saying in public this I remember. They're saying in public, it's a cash grab. It's going to hurt families. It's a tax, blah, blah, blah. All the 100% predictable things conservatives say about any policy at all, really. But presumably they knew, they're not dumb. They knew what you were telling them, that they're going to get all the money back. So what are they saying to you in private, substantively? No, no, they're saying the same thing. Like, I just couldn't even believe it. They're lying them. to you? You're the one who designed it. Well, I mean, I would say that to them and then they'd immediately go to a microphone. They're like, I just told the minister that, that this is a cash grab. I mean, it became a, in a way it was, it was not super fun because it, it actually, uh, it was a fight a minute and it ended up becoming like a real security issue for me because, you know, people hear things from politicians and you can inflame people if you think you're going to take money and people are just trying to pay the bills. So I always had to like, I'd have to rush to the mic too. And it would, because they didn't care. Like I remember one of the premiers, I got folks to actually do the math. And this is a conservative province where they have a provincial sales tax. And it's a province where generally people don't like taxes. So I got someone to do the math. I said, you can get rid of your provincial sales tax. Like mm-hmm. you can bring this in. And get, I said like, here's your sales pitch. Right. And he still, they still like for them, 
they thought, and this is why it's so important, this, us telling this side of the story, they thought it was a winner. They thought by riling people up and lying, but by saying you're going to pay more money and you can't understand this anyway, so we're just going to go stand. Like they literally did, they would do pictures. They would get ministers, like how embarrassing. Ministers would go fill up their tank. So they would have a picture of them at the gas station and then <laughs> say, well, I mean, I guess they would say it was an evolved face lie. They would say, this is going to cost, you know, an average family this much by 2022, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't talk about how you were going to get more money back. And so it literally was a comms war. Like we would yep. be on the airwaves. I had to be out getting pounded. You became kind of the, the face of the whole thing for a while. I imagine that was uh, unpleasant. It wasn't that pleasant. I mean, I'm Irish <laughs> from Hamilton and a swimmer, competitive swimmer. I mean, like, you know what? I can take it. And, and you know what? It's, it's actually interesting. Like I didn't love it. That's for sure. But I believed in it. And I believed that we needed to take serious climate action. And I felt like I could not lose it. Like I felt a personal responsibility, which was a heavy weight, by the way. But, and I was very worried, like going into the 2019 election, we, so we announced it, but you have to design it, right? And we had this output pace pricing system, which is very complex because you got to look at particular sectors, cement, aluminum. You got to look at see, you know, how do you have a price, but you have to design in a way that you're not sending, you know, these companies offshore. So it took a while. And so we literally kind of brought it in in 2019, which is the year of the election. (sighs) So it was, uh, but you know, the reality is, you know, so I was thinking David Plouffe, I think, said this in the American context, like hard things are hard and you're always going to, I'm paraphrasing, by the way, but you're always going to take flack. So go do the really hard things that matter. And I, I kind of thought that that was right because we could have done a crappy, wimpier version of right. this yeah. and we still, they didn't care, right? These guys were going to be out there. Anyway, and by the way, it was all guys. It was like a bunch of guys. It was like a picture of them on our national magazine calling themselves the resistance to Justin Trudeau. Um, oh. Catherine McKenna, I suppose. And, and you know, it, it was a fight worth fighting. And But we had to really enlist people and not just environmentalists. Now, I will give a shout out to our good friend, Kat. We all are, I think we all are big fans of Catherine Hayhoe. So she's a Canadian, just in case Americans <laughs> yep. don't know. Secret Canadian. Yeah, secret, secret Canadian. Canadian. I think she's very proud, actually. Very she often very she proud. tweets she that she's proud. Canadian. I mean, we, of course, had environmentalists putting out the message. But, I mean, we got young people, and it, it was good because at that time, you know, you had Greta, and young people are marching in the streets. We got doctors. There's a whole campaign of doctors to support us. I got Arnold Schwarzenegger to do a video <laughs> talking about as a Republican, he brought this in in a bipartisan yes, way. Right, like, right. you know, we were really just doing whatever we could so that Canadians could hear the message. Like there was some emphasis on like Canadians didn't know exactly how much money they're going back. That doesn't matter. Right. Like in a way, what Jerry said is right. Like the fact that you asked them, do you know exactly how much money you got back? That wasn't the thing. I think in the end, we were able to make carbon pricing part of a climate plan, a necessary part of it, but with a plan, a serious climate plan, where it wasn't the exact amount you got back that mattered. That was, we were very serious on climate change and the bad guys were bad. (laughs) Let me ask about the media war then, because one thing I really despair about here in the States is our abysmal media 
situation, like, you know, the, the carbon tax idea as, as constructed by the federal government in Canada sounds 1000% sensible to me. And I, you know, I have enough leftover belief in the power of reason and persuasion that if I could <laughs> sit someone down in a room and talk with them about it for a while, I could persuade them. But I have zero faith left that the merits have any connection at all to the media dialogue in the U.S. Like it's it's basically our right wing has captured, you know, a large portion of the population and just facts don't penetrate at all. It doesn't matter in our situation. It just wouldn't matter what happened with the revenue. None of the facts of the case would matter. Like they would create a whole fantasy and would be able to sustain it because they have this full 360 degree media machine that has completely captured like whatever, 30, 40 percent of the country. So what's the comparative media situation? I know you have some terrible Murdoch sponsored media up there too. But do you feel like when you put all your effort into it and you put a coordinated effort into it, that you were able to sort of get over the heads of that media machine and reach the public? Yeah. I mean, in a nutshell, I think Catherine, you were the one doing the reaching. So you should, you should talk about this maybe first. Well, I mean, look, we have media that fought this the whole time. and But I mean, it's it's actually goes to our broader strategy, which Jerry, you'd be better speaking about. I mean, we had to get to real people, right? And so like, you know, as many op-eds as you put in the papers, like how many people are actually reading them? Right. We did them. We did op-eds, but we didn't like, <laughs> yeah. I didn't wake up every day thinking about op-eds. I just spent a lot of time get, looking for clips for social media. I'd go get like average Joe. I would get the doctor. I would get whatever. And the party, they, well, sorry, the government. But, you know, and then in the election, the, you know, the liberal party, like we did a lot of social media to reach people because you can get confused, right? Like we need to meet, reach regular people. And sometimes, you know, you you can really worry about what's in a newspaper. Like how many people actually read newspapers? It's kind of sad. I get loads of newspapers, but it was more, how did we get the message across? And a really interesting thing happened, which was surprising to me, but important. I did push to have a check back every month. That's what I wanted. Uh, I really wanted like a big fat, I want someone to arrive at your door and hand you a big fat check. And McMahon. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The oversized check every month. You that, would be, that would be the best, but we were not, it wasn't that we didn't think about it. It's just that our, the way we do like payments, I don't know, there was, a, I don't even know. Sometimes these things I don't get, but we, we couldn't do it. But what was really interesting is that the most helpful, and actually we got a lot of free advertising, was uh, accountants. Because at tax time, they would literally advertise, come get your climate action incentive. And oh, we put a lot, of effort, <laughs> a lot of effort into climate action incentive. Like we thought about what is it that we want to call this thing you're getting back. Right. And climate, it just had to be about climate. It couldn't be like, it definitely couldn't say tax rebate or anything. <laughs> but they advertised. So you had all of these accountants and accounting firms and folks like saying, well, do your taxes, get your climate action incentive. You're going to get this much back in the province. And I would go there and do events. We had local members of parliament doing events to promote it because it's just a legitimate thing you would get back. So you needed to file your taxes to get it. It's funny. Uh, a constituency you don't necessarily uh, set out to target. <laughs> yeah, kidding. that's right. We got to get the accountants. We got to get the accountants on I board. No, you never. But at tax time, people <laughs> like money back. So that's the good news. Yeah. But I mean, like, look, I think you got to you gotta get every out. Like, I spent all my time trying to think about who I could get right. to sell it. Well, and when you think about it, who does your average person talk to about taxes every year? Right. It's the person who helps them file them. Right. Right. So, 
But on your media point, David, look, again, we are not the land of unicorns up here. Two thirds <laughs> of our daily newspapers are owned by an American hedge fund. Dope. <laughs> the same one that owns American media, i.e. the National Enquirer. And they were just, they had no shame in how they opposed the carbon price. They printed lie after lie after lie about it, but it didn't work because one thing we do have going for us, at least so far in this country, is that we're not tribal when it comes to our partisan affiliation. That you can, and many, most Canadians have voted for different parties at different points in their lives. Wow. And in fact, some people, some people even vote for different parties at different orders of government pretty much simultaneously. And I think that's a good thing. Like part of partisan adhesion is not as sticky uh, in Canada as it is in many places. Do you explain that just by reference to the fact that it's a parliamentary system and there are multiple parties, so there's not the sort of constant kind of binary forced on everything? Is that is that the explanation? No, uh, it's part of it for sure. I think that what explains it more is that we have more or less built and maintained an excellent public education system that uh, <laughs> 92, 93% of Canadians send their kids to. And I'm not joking, by the way. I think that that is... Uh, I'm laughing in envy. Yeah, again. you're looking for the secret sauce in Canadian policy and why everything from immigration to climate action is possible here. It's because of that basic fact that everybody goes to school together. Uh, yeah, we're we're in the midst of trying to destroy our, our system there too, lest any remaining solidarity be found anywhere. Uh, so this was, you know, run on in 2015, passed in 2018, and then the our elections in 2019. So as you as you say, there was no getting around nope. this being at the heart of the election. So the election of 2019. You know, I was just reading an account of it, which basically said the big winner was the carbon tax. No question about it. Two thirds of voters voted for a party that supported the carbon tax. So, I mean, I understand if you're, you know, a liberal and a fan of the carbon tax and, and involved in, <laughs> in doing it, you have incentive to sort of play up the extent to which the election was a referendum on the carbon tax. But but was it really like were there other bigger forces or was it really just mainly about the tax this time? It was the showdown at the OK Corral about uh, climate <laughs> in Canada, for sure. And there were other things, some of which uh, it's still still too soon for me to remember. You may remember <laughs> a certain story that came out about the prime minister in the middle of the campaign. That, uh, oh, yes. Yeah, that took over the news cycle for a few days. But, um, you know, I think that there's no doubt that the Conservatives had been elected in major provinces uh, not that there are any minor provinces coming from one in Nova Scotia, uh, but they had the government of Ontario, they had the government of Alberta, they had more or less the government of Quebec, and everybody was saying, and of course the leadership of the Conservative Party federally was saying, we are going to scrap the tax. And that was, there were probably two or three things that uh, decided the 2019 election, but A, there's no doubt in my mind that that was number one. Greta Thunberg drew I can't remember how many hundreds of thousands of people to the streets in the middle of Montreal, literally in the middle of the campaign. The prime minister marched in the rally. And B, more importantly for this discussion, there's no way we win that fight without the rebate. None. Huh. So the fact that the money goes back to citizens did play a big role in the debate? It was decisive. It was key. Like you, you had to, because you could call it out, right? I mean, it was a reasonable policy. And 
the view was they could just say it was a tax grab and the response had to be, it's not <laughs> like that had to be the response. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, this is what you get back. And I made like, I memorized like, by province, <laughs> right. And the MPs had special kits and like, because it, it really was a war and in, in, a, in a way elections, it's kind of good when you have one issue, like it doesn't feel good at the time. And I was very nervous as I said, but <laughs> it, it was good. Like it focused the mind and mm. it also, so carbon pricing also became like, do you want to act on climate? Because the conservatives were so against it. That's what I was going to ask. Like, to what extent was public support about kind of the details of this policy? And to what extent did it just kind of become a proxy battle of we care about climate change and they don't? <laughs> well, it's, it's a great question, David, because this wasn't a detail of the policy. This was the policy, right? The, right. the, the price and rebate. and the difference, as Catherine just said, one side saying it's a tax grab and the other side having to say, well, look at all the things we're going to spend the money on. And one side saying it's a tax grab and the other side saying they're lying to you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> one is it when it's when it's a live action kinetic political battle. Uh, one of those arguments is winnable and the other one is not. <laughs> yeah, just I, I feel the need to insert here just for to make myself feel better. Not that there's anything wrong with a federal government taxing people and spending Absolutely. money on public purposes. <laughs> Absolutely. Just for sure. And and look, we have a universal public health care system and the public education system that I just alluded to that would be right. impossible without those things. So then you win in twenty nineteen on the carbon tax. Politically speaking, is the feeling in Canadian politics now that this is settled, that we're just arguing over the details now, the main issue is settled, or are your right-wingers, like our right-wingers here in the U.S., never give up, still trying to really repeal the New Deal? <laughs> are they still after it, or or is this a settled question in Canadian politics? Yeah. Well, I, well <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think it's the Canadian public They've bought into uh, a price on pollution. That's what we call it, um, not the carbon tax. Um, but the conservatives apparently are going to kill themselves over this again. I mean, it's it's kind of <laughs> funny because the number of stories that have been written about the conservatives and like just tying themselves in knots over this um, and conservatives themselves, who the more reasonable ones who want to get elected, saying like, you do this again, you're going to lose again. Can right. you learn some lessons? So, I mean, it's going to happen, but I don't think that means it's a lost policy. I think that the conservatives are kind of a lost cause in a way. Having said that, I think you always have to be vigilant. Like, I don't think you can take it for granted as the price goes up that right, you, know, you, you right. have to continuously emphasize you're getting more money back. But I think you also need to do the other things. You have to make sure that your economy is growing and you're creating jobs and you're showing that you're taking real climate action. Like, I think... It's part of a, a bigger piece, but I don't know, Jerry, I mean, you spend, I, I mean, I spent time looking at polls, but I, I just spent most of the time selling, like your view on this being settled in Canada. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's settled. I, th I think that I'd hoped it would be settled 
in the last election that the conservatives kind of had a weird policy that nobody believed they would ever really implement, that they would go to a first minister's meeting and say, hey, we tried and now we're going to get rid of the old plan. <laughs> that was kind of my view. <laughs> a little bit like the dynamics around Obamacare. Exactly. Like, oh, we have an alternative, kind of, you know, it's like an outline. Don't worry. Yeah. And I don't think they ever had any intention of implementing it. It was, by my view, someone who spent a lot of time in government in this country, unimplementable. Um, <laughs> but that's, for them to answer. I look, as long as they uh you mentioned the forces of the right wing in the United States, they're the same forces, David. And you know, Catherine and I are both going into this lovely discussion from Ottawa where we have MAGA flags and Confederate flags flying <laughs> on Parliament Hill this week. So American so, Confederate flags. I yeah. you thought it was weird to see them in Maine. It's yeah. <laughs> even weirder that they're up in Ottawa now. Yeah. So before we talk a little bit more about dividends, I just want to hit on the Supreme Court case because, you know, we have uh, some difficulties with our Supreme Court down here. But there was a big case from several provinces sued over the tax. Basically, I think the substance of the lawsuit was that this is an unconstitutional power grab by the federal government over things that ought to be provincial. And the Supreme Court ruled in March of last year, uh, no. It's constitutional. Pretty much settled that. How nervous were you about that? Was that case a big deal or was it a frivolous lawsuit type of thing? <laughs> it was a pretty well, good deal. We definitely deal. needed to win. We definitely needed to win or else it was going to be really bad. Um, the thing that is also important, which Jerry had mentioned at the beginning as a design feature, we are a federation. And so we had to kind of demonstrate in a way the reasonableness um, that the environment is its, its joint jurisdiction between them. Uh, the federal government and the provinces. And so by saying like, you know, you can do a direct price or you can do cap and trade and design it how you want, but you got to meet the benchmark. That was really important. Uh, we knew that was going to be important. But the other thing that was legally, critically important, legally, it was going to be important. Yeah. Um, because I mean, it was, you know, we, we didn't just say, okay, everyone too bad, whatever your system is, we're getting rid of it or, <laughs> right, right. Um, or you have to design it just like this. We, we were, we were reasonable and, um, that was important, but also it's funny. I'm just looking cause someone, one of my staffers, they're all so nice, like put together something, uh, the, the front page of uh, a couple of our papers and, the Supreme Court uh, said climate change is a threat of the highest order to the country and indeed to the world. And that was critically important because, I mean, look, it was going to be ridiculous at the most basic level if a federal government couldn't attack greenhouse gas emissions within the country. <laughs> like, how are you going to yeah. have a climate plan? We couldn't comply with the Paris Agreement, right? right? Because if you have a target and you can't actually reduce emissions because our provinces get to do whatever they want and they can go, you know, continuously go up, that was going to be a huge problem. But the Supreme Court was very reasonable. And they they actually recognized that pollution doesn't know any borders. And we had tailored it in a way that it was narrow. And that was important because they did look at, okay, is the federal government going to come in? Because this, this was some of the arguments by conservative provinces, was that we're going to regulate everything. Like, I can't remember, Jerry, what would they say? Like, I mean, we'd have these conservative premiers, like, they're going to regulate how often you can drive your car or like they would yeah, just right. like go about like it was all always about banning beef that's what they're accused yeah. of down here they want to ban yeah, could beef. Be, that would they're be a good take example your they're gonna take your burger david <laughs> take your burger in your SUV. Uh, in your and SUV. that would be in alberta that would be well i mean many places that would be seen as a big problem so we had to we had to be careful but 
Uh, it was also a very important decision um, because it does now make it clear that the federal government can take action uh, to regulate greenhouse gas emissions um, and, and potentially, you know, broader areas where it's in, you know, the national interest. Um, but that was a really important decision. I, I didn't really think we had a chance of losing. Was I a bit nervous? I'm always a bit nervous on things. Uh, but you were pretty confident in the case and in the court itself. What's the situation with partisanship on the Supreme Court in Canada? I don't. It's not really partisan. It's not a thing. It's Ours is a, a thing. horrible mess. Yeah, it's not a thing. It's not a thing. Like, you know, people, you may, after the fact, sort of say or try, you know, maybe Stephen Harper, I think, probably tried to put people that, you know, might have been conservative. I just think that that's not the legal profession is just different here. How we appoint judges is, is different. And, I, and the court still has the public's viewed that way by the public, so trusted by the public as yeah. a as a kind of arbiter, a neutral yeah. arbiter type of yeah. thing. Yeah. Well that must be nice. Yeah, well, I mean, look, it's we <laughs> it's as the Prime Minister said many, many moons ago when he kicked off his leadership campaign in twenty twelve, uh, this country did not happen by accident and it will not continue without effort. <laughs> so it is it is a constant struggle, David. Well, you know, our Supreme Court is right on the verge of going in completely Indeed. opposite directions, stripping the federal government of its ability to yeah. regulate greenhouse gases. So yeah. you say it's not unicorns, but a functional Supreme Court, that looks a lot like a unicorn from down here. For sure. And <laughs> there's no doubt, again, the right wing here borrowing from your right wing in the United States, they were making their version of the state's rights argument against right. the <laughs> yeah. carbon price, right? But, you know, the Supreme Court, I wouldn't overstate it, which sounds like a funny thing to say. I mean, it was obviously critically important that, that you know, that it be found constitutional. But at the end of the day, a new government can always change policy, right? Right. Like, it Absolutely. only said that what we, like, I think that's why, I just think you can't get distracted in some ways by some things. Like, that was really important because otherwise you'd have to go back to the drawing table or win a majority or whatever, you know, get new legislation. But, it's about people, right? Like in the end of the day, you got to convince regular people. Now, elections aren't necessarily, maybe 2019 was kind of unusual because it was such a significant issue. They're fought on a variety of different fronts. But I actually think Canadians have come a long way, you know, on carbon pricing, but just on climate. I mean, here we're seeing, I mean, we, you know, the town of Lytton literally imploded, exploded. You know, it just burned down and, and we're seeing massive floods, uh, forest fires, droughts, um, our Arctic is thawing. And so I actually think like that doesn't mean that a particular policy will be resilient. But if you talk about it as a reasonable person and it is well designed, that was critically, it has to be well designed policy. I don't think that you can sell something that sucks um, to the regular person. But like uh, we are in a different place from yeah. where Canadians were at in 2015. And we're at a different place from where Canadians were in 2011, right? Like this right. is Canada did not look much different on climate change. In fact, in some ways, the Obama administration looked way better than the Harper <laughs> did on climate change. So, and I guess that's the point, David, of this whole discussion and why it kind of raised our Canadian version of Irish when we read this study. <laughs> like people can change things in democracies, and sometimes the cards are stacked against you, and sometimes it feels like nothing good can ever happen. But if people put their whole heart and soul into it, they can make change happen. That is possible. It's still possible. Well, we'll have to agree to disagree about that. 
Well, we're certainly hopeful for you because we did live through the Trump era. It was not, it was not yes. fun. So, well, um, I mean, uh, just to like put my cards on the table, like what I come back to again and again, like I feel like there's a lot of when people talk about the difference between the U.S. and Canada on this issue, there's a lot of sort of hand-waving about public opinion and who's sensible and who's not. But to me, it all in the end comes back to structures and procedures, right? Like you can have a majority that wants a policy and that will result in the policy passing. Sometimes. We have a majority. Sometimes. sometimes. We have a majority that wants the policy. We have a situation where 30% of the population can elect senators that can go literally block anything. So it's, I just think it's less the intangible stuff and more just sort of prosaic. We have really stupid rules, <laughs> kind of a stupid yeah. constitution. So I don't know how you get around that. Like we've done the work trying to change public opinion and it has changed and we've come up with good policies and like it did all the things you're supposed to do. And now, like, we're facing a situation where literally one dude from West yeah. Virginia who owns coal plants, <laughs> partly owns coal plants, like, is literally deciding whether what and whether we do anything at all on climate change. It's absolutely yeah. absurd. And, and that, to me, like, one of the central differences between the Canadian and American political systems, and as you know, I work mostly in the United States these days for Eurasia Group, is the centrality of money. Like, it's insane oh, to me yes. how much money I remember having. By the way, I should correct you, Catherine. That was the other David. It was David Axelrod who said that, not David Pluth. No, was it? Uh, we, we all get the Davids mixed up. Yeah, exactly. And I remember once Axelrod said, he asked me how much money we were going to spend in the 2015 campaign. And I said, well, it's probably going to be around 35, 40 million bucks. And it ended up being <laughs> 42 in the longest election campaign in modern Canadian history. Oh, my God. We spent that much on house races. Exactly. David said I spent more than that in the Democratic primary in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And spe speaking of our Supreme Court, you know, our Supreme Court just like took a look at that issue a few years ago yeah. and thought, you know, what we need is even more money with yeah. even fewer restrictions. So it's like a self-reinforcing cycle of terribleness. But before we're done, let me just talk about the dividend question. So I am curious, Catherine, why like one of the things that fee and dividend proponents are constantly saying is that it's very important that the dividends, that the rebates be visible, that people know they're getting them. So they all are sort of advocating this idea of, you know, send the big Ed McMahon check <laughs> to the door every month, things like that. But Canada went with a tax rebate that, you know, unless I think you're, you're pretty on the ball, would be very easy to just not notice. And, you know, this that's what the sort of research that was written up in that paper got at is that lots of people just aren't noticing it. So why bury it in tax rebates and what prompted the decision to shift this summer to mailing checks? And do you anticipate mailing checks to make a big difference? Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm like, why weren't we allowed to? I actually said this. I want to, I want to mail the child. I'll deliver it. I'll go to every Canadian and bring it to the... So I don't know. There was like, you know, it's interesting because maybe it's because the pandemic has shown how many things we can do when we really put our mind to it. But forever, the bureaucratic system, they could not do, like, could not do these mail-out checks. So anyway, we weren't able to win that. I, we've won it now in the sense that, I mean, we recognize it's important. But, but back to this whole thing about the checks, like, I mean, some of it was people didn't know how much they got, or half of the people didn't know they got a check. The, the, the thing about the conservatives, because they spent all their time, to the extent people cared, 
you know, they would be able to hear, you know, it's a tax grab. And then they'd hear us, well, me and, and others saying, well, actually, you're going to get more money back. So it really was very important. Like, I can't emphasize, like, you could not have won if you're like, well, actually, you know what, we put it into general revenue, and we're going to actually do this green thing where we're going to give it to green <laughs> stuff, like in different places. And I don't know what your provinces get, like, that's really not sellable. I mean, maybe the broader though, just to, cause I, I don't want to be too depressed about the situation in the United States. Cause I did live under, we did live under Donald Trump being the environment minister. This is climate change. more depressed about it than I am. So, so feel no, free. <laughs> well, it was, it was hard for us. I actually went to uh, Miami and Houston and hung out with the mayors there and did videos and for Canadians to say, but look, <laughs> but look, these guys are doing stuff uh, on climate. So, I mean, look, you always will have the States and you'll have a, uh, cities and you will have business that are acting. But I think the other thing is you got to be crafty, right? Like we, we could have done the easy thing and it, it, it didn't really occur to me because I wasn't going to back down on it. But I mean, people did want us to not do this, including internally. Mm. Some people would just be like, eh, just walk, like, you know, kind of like wait out the clock thing. Yeah. Um, but we, we were crafty and I know it's much harder in the United States, but comms matters. Um, designing things in a way that can uphold a constitutional challenge. I mean, you know, I get your Supreme Court, you have challenges working with states. I don't know, like litigating everything and knowing that it's going to be in place while it's litigated. I don't know. Like, I do think you do have to be kind of crafty too. And so we're just hopeful. Like, I'm really hopeful that the U.S. is able to land things. And I'm going to be at Columbia, and uh, I'm uh, with Jason Bordoff. Some folks might know him. Um, he was at the Center for... Just on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. He was. Okay. Well, so uh, with the new climate school, too. And I'm going to be working on carbon pricing and border carbon adjustments. And we haven't really talked about this, but I feel like, you know, maybe the enticement of border carbon adjustments will help on the pricing. The IMF is working on a minimum floor price floor so there's there's action i'm i don't know i'm a realistic optimist or an optimistic realist some days um but i don't want to give up on you know you guys doing things so that's all i'll say give it a while give it a while in america we'll we'll get you there we'll get you there to, (laughs) to, to, to complete depression um well just as a final question sort of looking to the future of the canadian carbon tax I think one of the things maybe that's not publicly appreciated about these discussions about carbon tax because they're politically such big deals is that especially at the level that they're being talked about starting at, they're just macroeconomically not that big a deal. Like if you look at sort of macroeconomic assessments, it's like 1% GDP one way or the other yeah. with a lot of uncertainty. So, Which is just to say that I can understand completely why dividends serve as a great political argument and then also that people in practice maybe aren't that aware of them, right? I can see both those things being true because they're just not that big. Like the the amount you're paying in tax is not yet very big and the amount you're getting back is not yet very big. So the actual amounts of money, as opposed to the sort of political symbolism of it all, is relatively modest. That said, you are about to crank it way up. Like the tax is about to go way up to the point, I think, that we're going to pretty soon be at levels that Canadians will start noticing the costs and maybe start noticing the checks back too. The the amounts on both end are going to get bigger. So I, I guess I'm curious, sort of like, is there a next test 
yeah, of I the think, tax. I think there's going to be an annual test, right? And you're right that uh, people are going to feel 170 bucks a ton a lot more than they feel 50 bucks yeah. a ton. And there's no way that they would tolerate, uh, or I shouldn't say that, there's no way that you'd maintain a political consensus for it if that money weren't being rebated to people. Because while you're right that even 170 bucks a ton at whatever, maybe $3 trillion the Canadian economy will be at the time is not that much. But for individual families, it is a lot. And you're, you, are you pretty confident that the checks will increase the salience of the of the dividends? Have there, has there been any sort of like testing or polling or anything on that? Or was that just like kind of like a gut common sense call? Yeah, I can't speak to that because that policy was announced after I joined the private sector. But I suspect that was the reasoning, David, and there's no reason to believe it won't be the case. Uh, but it's going to require a continuous commitment to communication. And of course, 2030 is uh, sooner than it used to be, but it's still, it's still <laughs> every a couple day. Of, yeah, exactly. But it's still a couple of election cycles away and anything can happen. Right. Well, thank you guys so much, A, for doing this thing in the first place, which, <laughs> despite your admonition, still has unicorn vibes to me. Uh, <laughs> and Catherine, I hope you, I, I wish you all the best in joining the fight down here in the U.S. We could use some new, some new energy and optimism. Whatever, uh, whatever I can do. <laughs> all right. Thanks you both for coming on today. It was really fun. That was great. That's a real pleasure, David. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.